Happy Sabbath. I'd like to welcome you all to our church service today. There's, like they say, we're kind of few in number, but strong in heart. And I'd certainly like to welcome each one of you for the service that's been prepared. Hello, hello. All right. Hello, hello, hello. Can you hear me? I like something in front of, to hide behind. This isn't doesn't cover up much. I'm glad each one of you are here, and uh, hope that you can hear what we say. Uh, your bulletins, uh, if you'd look at the back, you see that Wednesday there's prayer meeting, as far as I know. Friday, then there's the soup and bread get-together. And then Sabbath, January 13th, we will have a communion service with Pastor McCoy and the old facility. Then Kids Club is on Monday, the 15th of January at 5 p.m. I don't believe there's anything further to mention as far as King's business, so does anyone else have something that they need to share with us? All right, I'll turn the time over to Randy to call for the offering. You know, there's probably nothing better than having the last offering of the year be for our local church budget. You know, there's something historical about today, too, in relation to the fact that this will be, under the current tax code, the last offering that we have. Many people are living in fear, nonprofits, churches, and so forth, because only 5% of the people will now take deductions. But we in the Adventist church don't live by whether we take deductions or not. What we live by is faith, hope, and love. And when we live in faith, hope, and love, it doesn't matter in relation to anything else, does it? Our relationship with God is what's important. And when we give, we give because God gave it to us first. God is good all the time. May the deacons take up the offering at this time. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Dear Heavenly Father, 
we thank you for this gift, this small gift that we give to you, O oh Lord. But we know that you will multiply it. We know that you will make it what it needs to be. Lord, we give this and we give our hearts to you today, fully and completely, Lord. Help us to remember our relationship is with you. Nothing else matters. Let your love envelop each of us this morning in your goodness and in your love. We thank you for the example that this church is for this community of your goodness, of your love, of your mercy. Let it live forever. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning to Matthew, the first chapter and the 21st verse. Matthew 1, 21. If I can make this thing work correctly. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And we're all told that we all come short of sin and come short of the glory of God. And so we're thankful for his death for each one of us, aren't we? Are there any praises or prayer requests that you would like to ask before we kneel for prayer? Yes, Kathy. And all the boys. Right now they're in a real crisis. Josh took off again. They're not sure. I don't know where he's at. But please pray for him. He'll get the help that he needs. And pray for Diane. She's got a terrible bug right now. I'm going to try to say in English... Mara, Marta, si me equivoco, me ayuda, por favor. And I thank you, I'm thankful with God because this year I have been blessed, blessing with my kids are doing well. My grandkid is doing very, very well. And I got my first goal in this country. And it was... Um, I got my CNA one license, although the the English, but I was afraid to to check out the the rest the my resultados, the results of my test, and I was oh no I don't want to to check out ah, I was afraid but I I told no God I I had to. And I check out, and thank God I passed the test, and I got my license. And I thought, I think that the next summer I will go for the license for CNA two, and I will be able to work in, at a hospital. And this is my my goal. And thank God. Amen. <laughs> Anyone else? Joanne. Um, I want to pray for the missionaries. All right. And I also want prayer for several people that have serious 
sickness, serious illness. Um, I just won't mention their names, but a couple of friends with cancer and and some other pretty serious stuff. And I just like prayer for the sick. And I think probably maybe everybody has friends and family that maybe we can just pray for those who have illness and ailments. Prayer for my daughter, Donna, who lives in Tacoma, Washington. She asked me if I would pray for her and that. And also the, the families of the ones who was killed in the fire, apartment fire in New York. Terrible, terrible and that. Um, I asked about two or three months ago for prayer for my friend Murma and uh, because she was having her heart was racing all the time and it made her feel exhausted and I keep forgetting to tell you guys that the prayers were answered and she doesn't have that problem anymore so I'll praise God for it I just asked for prayer for my daughter Juliet she's getting married this summer and just lots of obstacles to overcome in planning a wedding and just praying for God's blessing on their relationship. Paul. Yeah, I just wanted to let you know that my brother-in-law that I told you about two or three weeks ago, he got his new heart valve and he's doing fine. Amen. Also... Uh, last Friday, not yesterday, but a week ago, my wife was walking, coming down the stairs to our, off our porch and fell and hit her face on the side of the car so, so hard that it bent the car. And so I kept her up most of the night because I was worried she had a concussion. But she's doing fine. She went to the doctor and they said she's Pretty tough, I guess. <laughs> Praise God. I want to pray for Mindy as she approaches the end of her pregnancy that all will go well. Julie. So last night, Wesson on his own wanted to give some money out of his piggy bank to Adra. And so today, we, and so he gave me this little donation, and we want to pray for that money that it goes and helps kids. My niece, Emily, and my nephew, Michael, lost their grandparents on Christmas Day. They both died in a car accident. So I would ask that you pray for them and also for, the, for Emily's dad, Alan, and his brother. All right. Any others? I might just share a, a request that I have. I, I received a call yesterday. I was on the phone talking with Mackenzie Willamette, trying to get, they billed me twice for something, and so I was on the phone, and I heard the phone beep. I never have been able to, when that happens, be able to connect to the new one without losing the old one, so... 
I didn't answer the phone. Later in the day, uh, I'd taken the dogs out for a walk and came back in. The wife says, uh, you need to listen to the message that's on the phone, and uh, it's about our grandson, Brent Eves. And so I listened to it, and it was a public defender calling me, wanting to talk with me. And he'd been arrested on Christmas Day, or the day before Christmas. Maybe it was Christmas Day, I don't know. But anyway, he's lodged in the Lane County Jail. And uh, apparently he was caught trying to steal something from the St. Vincent de Paul out in front of that place after hours or something and and then it just ballooned from there in that when the officer came where trying to resist arrest and so they took him to jail and what I need to tell you is that last last summer he came up to live with his mother and he started doing things that he shouldn't do because he'd been into drugs and and such. He's 26 years old, so he's not a child. But what happened was that he had invited a girlfriend to come up, and so I, I, I went over and told Brent, I said, you know, you need to find someplace else to stay. This isn't working out. And so he left. We went back into the Eugene area where he had been living before he came up to live with his mother. And that's, it's just deteriorated from there. So I'd like special prayer that I know how to deal with, I I call the uh, public defender, but Beans the holidays, they had left early. It was only 4 o'clock. They said their normal hours are till 5. So I don't know the right response once I do talk to the public defender. But my plea is that maybe Brent has hit rock bottom and that he wants to change it. You know, it's impossible for us to change anybody, and not that we should. You, this, this week's lesson gave us a lot of good advice on how to deal with people. But unless a person wants to change and do something different of their own, no matter what you do, you're just, you're not helping, you're enabling. So I'd like prayers for him. Then I received a letter from Elder Hall and his wife, and that's bad news in that, you know, he was diagnosed with lung cancer and uh, seemingly got over that, but apparently it came back into both lungs. He went to his uh, primary care physician, and they said, you know, you've got about six months to live. It doesn't look like there's anything we can do, so you don't need to ever come back to us. 
So it's a desperate thing, but we know the Lord can heal. He knows what uh, his servant has done and, and what needs to happen in the future. So if you'd please remember Elder Hall as we pray. Let us kneel as we pray. Heavenly Father, on this last Sabbath day of, of 2017, we're joyed that we can come and the sun is shining upon us. We thank you for the blessings that we've received throughout this year. Many times it seems like there haven't been blessings, but we know that you know best for each one of our lives, and each one of us is a different person. So we pray, Father, that you would continue to be with us as we know you want to be. And as 2018 starts, we pray that we have made new commitments with you that we will stay close to you and have you by our side and that we want to live as you would want us to live. Father, we, we pray for the many requests that were made this morning. We know as an older person, I can't remember and I can't write them down as fast as people make them, but you've heard those requests, Father, for the missionaries, for Mimi and the unborn baby and the unborn. We pray for Brenda as she prepares for this upcoming wedding. Be with her, and as a new couple do have this wedding, we pray that they would make you the center of their new life. We pray for the other requests that I don't remember them. We ask these things in your name. Good morning again. Happy Sabbath. Okay, we're going to sing a couple of Christmas songs. We're going to start with hymn number 136. Good Christians now rejoice. 136.
sing this one. 120. There's a song in the air. Good morning, church. This is the fifth Sabbath of December. It's an extra Sabbath and one that I had actually planned on having someone else here to preach, Bo, but he kindly asked me if he could be excused, which I thought was fine. And at that moment, I realized that I needed to think about a sermon, and I didn't really want to continue our series in Galatians, which we're doing every second and or first and third Sabbath. And the Lord impressed upon my heart this message that I'll be sharing with you today called Holy Genes. And it deals with something that we find to be, well, I find to be quite mundane at times. uh, And that is genealogy. The good news, well, there's a lot of good news today. I don't know if you realize this, but we're on our way to summer. Did you know that? 
we've passed the shortest day of the year, and now we're on our way to summer. That's really good news. And also, we have a Savior. And that's really the focus of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. The point of the whole record of that genealogy is that we have a Savior, and His name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you this morning for this opportunity that we have to know that summer is on its way, that the light and the warmth that summer reflects is also found in Jesus Christ and that we have a Savior and that he's on his way, not just to return to this earth, but he's on his way to aid us, to help us, to support us, to encourage us, to accept us, to forgive us, to be our friend as well as our Savior. May that be the message that comes to us this morning as we open up to the book of Matthew chapter 1, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This verse, as I said, comes at the end of this long genealogical list that really traces back to Abraham. That's where it starts in Matthew. Now, genealogy comes from two Greek words. The first one, genia, which means generation, and the second one, logos, which means knowledge. The knowledge of your generations, or that is the knowledge of your family history or tracing your, your lineage and history. And that is of great interest today in America, but it also brings a little bit of hesitancy, at least to some people who wonder what they're going to uncover in their family history. Maybe there's some embarrassing family connections <laughs> that we're going to find out about if we chase, trace our lineage. All of this uh, interest, by the way, in genealogy began with Alex Haley's research of his own geo- gene- genealogy. And uh, that was authored in a book uh, and a TV series called Roots, which aired in about 1977. I was just a, a young lad when that came out. And four decades later, genealogy is considered to be the second most popular hobby in the United States after gardening, according to ABC News. And this is a quote from Time Magazine. And the second most visited care category... Um, on the website after pornography. Yeah, so genealogy is a billion-dollar industry. It has spawned profitable websites, television shows, uh, scores of books, and the advent of over-the-counter genetic test kits have become a cottage industry in the United States. People are into this. They want to find out, find out about their family, about their history, about their genetics. So it's something that has become a favorite pastime in America. But it's not a real popular, at least there isn't a real popular parallel found in the Bible. I mean, genealogy is in the Bible. You know that, right? It's in the book of Numbers, for example. <laughs> is that one of your favorite books to read? Maybe we should have a seminar on numbers sometime here at Fall Creek. It's, to me, a little bit boring. I mean, think about it. 
impossible to pronounce name after name after name after name after name of people that you don't have any connection with as far as you know, that you don't know. You're just reading one name after another or trying to read those names one name after another. And Matthew chapter 1 has always reminded me of that. It's like the book of Numbers. I mean, I used to think that the point of Matthew's number list was to somehow prove that Jesus was connected, that he had connections, you know, that he was a, he was a Hebrew and, and, and his family was connected all the way down to Abraham and, and that he had a good pedigree. I really wasn't sure there was any other reason for this book of Numbers list in Matthew chapter 1 other than that. However, this seemingly boring genealogy of Jesus Christ reveals something significant in regard to the mission of the Savior that I had never noticed before. And that's what I'd like to share with you this morning. The reason I think this is significant is because what we find in Matthew chapter 1 isn't done in the biblical genealogy of Numbers, and it's not even found in the genealogy of Luke chapter 3, which also traces Christ's ancestry. In Matthew, unlike Luke and unlike Numbers, the genealogy lists not one, not two, not three, but four females, four women, are listed there. Now, you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, for some reason, I guess it's a big deal for women to be listed in genealogy in the Bible because you won't find it anywhere else. And I think that the reason why there's four women is also significant because four, as found in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, is significant of inclusiveness. It's like the four directions of the, of the, of the compass, north, south, east, and west. When God uses four, like in Matthew 13, the four different soils that, was, that, that the seeds were sown into, when God uses four, like holding the four winds back, when God uses four, like the four horses, he's talking about including everyone, like the whole family of earth. And so you have these four women that are included in this genealogy for a specific reason, I think, to, to denote inclusiveness, that we have a Savior who, who comes from a, a genealogy, a, a family history that is inclusive of everyone. And I think this bears out as we read the story here. You see, Matthew is making, I think, a powerful point that neither Luke nor Moses was inspired to make, but one that Matthew could relate to in his own life. You know why? Because Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector. Do you know what tax collectors are? That's IRS. You know the IRS, tax collector? Okay, well, it was just as bad in Matthew's time. I mean, the thing that's interesting to me is, is that Matthew was not only a tax collector, but he was willing to admit that in his own gospel. He identified himself in his gospel, as a tax collector. Now, the reason why this is significant is because Luke doesn't identify him as a tax collector. Mark doesn't identify him as a tax collector. John doesn't identify him as a tax collector. They just identify him as Matthew. (laughs) Matthew is making some points here in chapter 1 that he continues to make throughout his gospel, and that is 
He connects himself, he connects people to their history, their bad history, and as he does that, he points them to a savior. See, sometimes we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to own our history, at least not our bad history. The good history, maybe. I mean, maybe I'm related to a king or a queen. (laughs) Maybe I'm related to someone important. What is my family background? What is my history? Well, Matthew's history is a tax collector. And he's able to describe himself in this language because Matthew has a savior. You see, a tax collector in Christ's day was known to be a publican. And it was the lowest of the low because tax collectors betrayed their nation. Because tax collectors collected taxes from the Hebrews for the Romans, the ruling power. And so they were betraying their nation. They were the lowest of the low. And they were considered the worst of sinners. And to understand how the Jews actually related to publicans, we need to read just a few verses. First one's found in Matthew 9.11. When the Pharisees saw it, they're looking at Jesus and they're looking at what he's doing. When the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you see the category tax collectors are in here? Tax collectors and sinners. The worst of the worst. Here's another verse, Matthew eleven nineteen. And the Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Again, you see the category that tax collectors are in here? It's synonymous with being a sinner. Let me give you another verse, Matthew 21, 31. Jesus said unto them, Assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. You see the category again that tax collectors are placed in? Very similar to our IRS mentality today, but they are the lowest of the low. And Matthew is saying in his gospel, when he's called, he's describing how Jesus came to him, and he's saying, and Jesus came to Matthew, the publican, the tax collector. He's okay with that. He's okay with that because he is talking about his Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to save him and us from the worst of the worst, at least in the category of the world. So I think this last verse in Matthew 21, 31 is pretty, a pretty good place for us to get back into our genealogy. In Matthew 30, 21, 31, we see this connection between tax collectors and harlots. And this harlot description is actually the very same connection we're going to see in Matthew chapter 1 with our first woman. Let's take a look. Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judah and his brothers, and Judah, verse 3, begat Perez and Sarah, Zerah by Tamar. There's the first mention of a woman in the history, in the Bible history of genealogy, Tamar. Now, who is Tamar? Well, Tamar, or Tamar, was the widow of Ur. He was the son of Judah, who lay with Onan, that is is, Tamar, lay with Onan, the second son of Judah, and she was the fiancé of Shelah, the third son of Judah. Now just follow this. Tamar married Ur, and he died. And as custom was, the next son was supposed to give her seed to carry the seed on, but he wouldn't do it, and so he died under God's curse. That was um, Onan. And so now, 
Judah, the father of Ur and Onan, who have just died, connected with Tamar, has to give his third son to her to carry on the family tree of the seed. And he's reluctant to do that. Because he feels like this woman is cursed and he, he doesn't want to lose the third son. He's already lost two. And so as he's holding back, Tamar, as the story goes, played the harlot in a certain town in order to get Judah, her father-in-law, to sleep with her and impregnate her so that she could carry on the family line. No, this is all in the Bible. I'm not reviewing some R-rated movie that just got released. This is all in the Bible. This is biblical history. This is your history and my history. This is our history as human beings. And so she plays the harlot, and it works. She actually is able to lure him in and lay with him, and she gets pregnant because Judah had refused to give her third, his third son to her to carry on the family tree. And so Tamar plays the harlot. Judah sleeps with her. And when the truth comes out, when it all comes out, because Judah was actually going to kill her and getting pregnant outside of wedlock so that he could be rid of all this trouble, when the truth comes out, Judah realizes that he actually was the one who impregnated her. He acknowledges and says, she, Tamar, has been more righteous than I because that I gave her not to Sheila, my son. And that's found in Genesis 38. You can read the whole story there. Genesis 38, that's verse 26. So what a verse. I mean, what an amazing verse if you think about it. One sinner is acknowledging that another sinner is a better sinner than they are. (laughs) She's been more righteous than me. She played the harlot and got him to impregnate her, but she's more righteous than I am. And that's about the bottom line for all of us. I hope you understand that we're all sinners. And one being more righteous than another doesn't remove the fact that we're sinners. Yes, Tamar was more righteous than Judah, according to Judah, but she actually played the harlot and got him to sleep with her outside of wedlock, her father-in-law. She was a sinner too. Now, all of this is mentioned in the genealogy of Christ because we, as human beings are confronted with deception and immorality and unbelief and fear, and yet God works through all of that to bring us redemption. We have a Savior. Call his name Jesus. Now, the second woman is mentioned in this genealogy, that's mentioned in this genealogy, is Rahab. Verse 4. And Ram begat Aminadad, and Aminadad begot nation, And Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. There's the second woman, Rahab. Now, you don't have to go very far with Rahab, okay? Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. They went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. These are the spies going into Jericho to spy out the land. Joshua 6, 17. When the city was doomed by the Lord to destruction, all who were in it were doomed, but only Rahab the harlot shall live. Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. Joshua 6.25, and Joshua spared Rahab the harlot. Hebrews 11.31, going to the New Testament. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish. James chapter 2, verse 25, again in the New Testament. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? 
Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot, Rahab the harlot. Would you like to be called a harlot for the rest of your life? Would you like to have that, that phrase next to your name in the inspired word of God, Old and New Testament, forever? Well, she doesn't have a problem with that. You know why? Because she has a Savior. Our past doesn't matter when we have a Savior. Our failures don't matter when we have a Savior. Our mess-ups don't matter when we have a Savior. So over and over again in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Rahab is known by the phrase, Rahab the harlot. Yet, in a sense, it's not only her faith, but the, the faithfulness of Rahab's life that points to a history that is worth her being mentioned over and over again in the Old and New Testament. God has a way of making our failures a vindication of his love and allowing our lives that are filled with mistakes and sins to be monuments of his glory and his righteousness. That's what he does. That's what he's in the business of doing. And, and Matthew doesn't want to pass this over. He doesn't want to pretend that, that all the, the lineage here is just, the genealogy here is just, just lines up perfectly. He wants to bring this out. He wants to bring this out. He wants to bring this out. And he doesn't stop here with number two. He goes to number three in, in verse five. And Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz begat uh, Obed by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. Ruth came from the land of Moab. Her people were idol worshipers and persecutors of God's people. Today, that might look like saying that you had a Catholic or a Hindu upbringing. I do. I was raised Catholic. I was raised worshiping idols. So I can relate to Ruth. Because coming out of idol worship, God hands me the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ, and I become a follower. A follower like like Ruth did, a follower of the true God. Naomi, her mother-in-law, might have been a little bit disappointed as a third or fourth generation Adventist that her boys were marrying Moabites, Moabitess women, women that weren't Hebrews, because they had left Jerusalem, they had left Israel, and they'd gone to the land of Moab to survive. And in making that compromise... Her sons all married these Moabitess women. And then when they passed away and her husband passed away and she decided to head back to Israel, Ruth wanted to go with her. Now, she had tried to persuade both of the, the, the daughter-in-laws to stay, but, but Ruth insisted on going, I want to go where you go. I'm going to be where you are. I'm going to lodge where you lodge. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Something in the life of Naomi had reflected the goodness of God. And it caused Ruth to fall in love with this God that Naomi served and refused to do anything but go with her to Israel. And eventually, that seed of witness that Naomi had revealed to her grew into a strong plant and tree. And Naomi became a true follower. And now, as part of the, geneal- the, the genealogy, the, 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 the family history that leads to the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing, isn't it, how simple it is to win people to Jesus by just showing them love? 
because that's all we know that Naomi must have done in her life. Now, the last one is even more significant. It's found in verse 6. This is number 4, woman number 4. And Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's amazing. I mean, he could have said that David begat Solomon by Bathsheba. <laughs> that was her name, right? Why does he have to go and dig into the, to the nasty, dirty stuff? David begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Well, how, what, what does that mean? Oh, you don't know that story? Oh, what happened basically was David was out on his, uh, in his, looking over his kingdom one night, and there was this beautiful woman named Bathsheba who was out bathing, and he lusted after her and took her to himself, impregnated her, but the problem was that he wasn't married to her, and she was married to somebody else. And so David need to, needed to come up with a plan to make it so that, that Uriah, her real husband, actually was the one that impregnated her, though he didn't. And so he called him back from the war, from the front lines, and encouraged him to sleep with his wife. But Uriah wouldn't do it. So now David's in a real dilemma. Uriah is so faithful to his men that he can't even think about sleeping with his wife while they're on the front lines. And so David sends him with a message, and the message he sends him with is, Put this man in the front lines, and when you have an opportunity, withdraw from him so that he will be killed by the enemy soldiers. And that's exactly what happens. But David is found out. The prophet of God comes to him and rebukes him, and the whole thing is exposed. That whole history is exposed because David had taken then Bathsheba to himself to try to legitimize the fact that she was bearing his son. All that history was exposed. It was all written down. And Matthew, in one little line, by her who had been the wife of Uriah, brings that whole history out, right in the genealogy of Christ. There it is, right there. The dirty, dark history that none of us would want revealed about ourselves, I'm sure, is all right there. Why? Well, I think it's because of the fact that Matthew wants us to know that we have a Savior who can save us from the very worst of sins. I think that's the point Matthew's trying to make here. So there are the, there are the four buys in these verses. By Tamar, by Rahab the harlot, by Ruth the Moabitess, by Tamar who played a harlot, and then by her who had been the wife of Uriah. <laughs> bye, 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 bye. And that's where we are. I think all four of them are intentional. I think all four of them jettison away from the normal Hebrew genealogy. All four of them uncover embarrassing historical data in the genealogy of Jesus. All four of them declare emphatically that a Savior has been born. And that is why they are there in the genealogical record, genealogical record of Jesus. Matthew is not afraid. He's not afraid to recount the obvious failings of his people the very, in the very ancestral line of Jesus. The holes, H-O-L-E-S, the holes in his genes. Because 
in Christ, holy genes, H-O-L-E-Y, holy genes make us whole. W-H-O-L-E. Holy genes, the holes in his genealogy make us whole. In other words, Jesus Christ had holy, H-O-L-E-Y genes that make us whole, W-H-O-L-E, and holy, H-O-L-Y. His holes, the gaps, the failures in his history make us whole and holy. They bring us hope. I know this from my personal experience because I was born with a history that was a little bit difficult for me to wrap my mind around. My mother and father met on a Marine Corps base in Oceanside, California. My dad was divorced and supporting a family. My mom fell in love with him. He made it very clear to her that he couldn't support another family on a Marine Corps salary. And therefore, he was not interested in marrying or her having children. Nevertheless, she got pregnant. Now, at that point, she had to make a decision. We need to go back to the 1960s because I was born in 1962. Not only was... Having children out of wedlock, a terrible thing. But my father was black. And my mom was white. Now, she had a choice to make at that point. She had to decide, am I going to keep this child? She didn't know she had twins until a little later. (laughs) Or am I going to adopt them out or even abort them? Abortion wasn't even an option for her because she was raised Catholic. Adopting them out was something that her sister tried to get her to do, who lived in Idaho Falls, Idaho, was older than her and had a stable family. But eventually she decided to keep me, us, and moved to England, where she was, had been living before she came to the United States. She was 25 when she had us. She was 14 when she came to the United States. She was raised in Ireland until she was 11, and now she went back to England, where she lived and raised us for 10 years. I went to a private Catholic school, and every single person I knew in that school, except for three young black men who were living in an orphanage, had a mother and a father. I was the only one that didn't, that I knew of, my sister and I. Everyone else I knew of had a mother and father. Even immigrants that my mom brought into our home that came from Burma then, Meyer Meyer today, even those families had mothers and fathers. <laughs> we just had a mom and an occasional boyfriend that showed up. And it was uncomfortable to be in a society, to be in a private school. That was my background. I didn't talk about it a lot. Even in high school, it bothered me a little bit. But what overwhelmed that when I got into high school was the fact that we had moved back to the United States of America. We were living in Spokane, Washington, and we were going to the only high school that included black students. And in those days, right after the civil rights movements of the late 60s, there was still a lot of tension in the air, racial tension. I had friends that were black and I had friends that were white. We lived right above the Martin Luther King Jr. Center for black people in our neighborhood. We were, right, we were right below the, the South Hill where all the fancy homes were and right above the ghetto. <laughs> we were right in the middle. And I had friends on both sides. And some of my white friends didn't know that I was half black. 
and it was embarrassing for me to tell them or for it to be discovered. The record of our lives seen in the light and the life of Jesus Christ, the Savior from our sins, is one of perfect righteousness. The defects are gone. The failures are gone. They're covered by the blood of Jesus. There's no mistakes. There's no sins. Everything is swallowed up in the everlasting arms of the one who tasted death for us. In the ancestral record of Matthew, we find registered the Judas, the Tamars, the Rahabs, the Ruths, the Davids, the Bathshebas of our lives. It's our history. The question today, right now, is does the, chronolog- does the chronology of our lives lead us to Jesus? Or do they lead us away from him? Thinking we're not good enough to come to Jesus. We're not good enough to be in church. We're not, we're not perfect enough to be accepted by God. Has the personal sinful genealogy, genealogy, the nasty revelations of our selfish hearts, led us step by step to Jesus the Savior? Because that's the point Matthew's trying to make. Matthew was not intending anything less than that this gospel truth when he included this, the, the four buys. Nothing less than this gospel truth. He didn't have to hide the biblical record of sin because he is directing the entire chronological history to a Savior, to your Savior and my Savior. Matthew is making a powerful point, one that neither Luke nor Moses were inspired to make. In announcing the birth of Jesus... The one who saves from sin, Matthew intentionally names the very sins Jesus came to save us from. Instead of a dry list of who's who in the great biblical record, Matthew gives a more detailed list of people with questionable backgrounds and deliberately includes nasty revelations about their lives because Matthew is deliberately uncovering the holes, H-O-L-E-S, in the genealogy of Jesus, his holy genes, so that through this revelation we can be made holy and holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y and H-O-L-Y. Jesus Christ had holy genes that make us whole and holy. Christ's genealogy gives us hope. We have hope. Jesus is the Savior of all people. He's the Savior of a people with a past. Jesus is the Savior of unsavory people. Christ's holy genes make us whole and holy. You don't have to hide your sins either. You don't have to pretend to be righteous. You have a Savior who is righteous. Are you a murderer? An adulterer? A liar? Do you hate? Do you lust? Do you gossip? That is why they call him Jesus. He came to save us from our sins, to restore life, to restore love, to restore hope, to take away our despair, our insecurity, our fear, and rejoice with his love. As we think about the birth of Jesus, we are reminded of the greatest gift heaven could give to the human race. Let it lead us to say, again and again with unending praise and hope 
Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Luke 2, 14. Amen? Father in heaven, thank you so much for the holy genes of Jesus that make us whole and holy. Thank you for the failures and mistakes that are so prominent in the genealogical record that leads to Christ. And we know this was the record of Joseph. We understand the connection there, but we recognize that he was still aligned with that human being and with all human beings. And we believe that means something, that he became a man, that he came in the likeness of humanity, in the likeness of sinful flesh, that he took upon himself our nature, that he endured our pain and our suffering, and that he carried with him the stigmatism of his birth and his family tree and allowed that to to reach our hearts wherever we are, whoever we are, and to give us hope. Father, thank you for that. And thank you for this wonderful gospel truth that's found in Matthew chapter 1. Thank you for Jesus Christ who has come to save us from our sins. Amen. We have a closing hymn, and then we'll let you go. sing 118 the first noel like to invite you to stand
Father in heaven, we want to thank you that Jesus Christ, God in human flesh, was born in a manger. We want to thank you that lowly shepherds were invited, that they were the guests as well as the magi. We want to thank you that he was born among among the animals, that he was clothed with swaddling cloth. We want to thank you that he lived in Nazareth and was a carpenter for 30 years. We want to thank you that he had a questionable birth and history, and that when he involved himself in ministry, that there was a cloud, there was a question about who he was and where he came from, and that all of this poverty, all of this humility, all of this question that surrounded him was done for us, so that whoever we are, wherever we are, wherever we come from, that we could know that we have a Savior who can relate to us, who loves us, who accepts us, who forgives us. Thank you in 2017 for this gift. And thank you in 2018 for the hope it brings us for the new year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.